ready for the O'Shelly effect. I'm a big fan of the show. Chuck O'Shelly, and he's been known for many years as a blind GFK researcher specializing in intelligence agency involvement in multiple assassination, propaganda, and other global criminal operations in the 20th and 21st centuries. Your listeners are extremely fortunate to have you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media. Chuck O'Shelly! February 13, 2019, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar, and this indeed is the Ocelli Effect. Originally broadcast live from the facilities of Ocelli.com, but who knows where and how you're hearing it, no matter how that is, we do appreciate you and welcome. So it is a Woden's Day at the time I'm doing this live, and uh, that does mean Wednesday to most of you. And who do we have with us? Well... <laughs> this is always a pleasure, and why? Uh, let me let me turn around and and do the egotistical thing for a second, uh, which I never do. But let's let's have fun with it for a moment. I get these strange messages sometimes that tell me that I must be out of my mind to do five days a week a radio show slash podcast and then of course there's all the writing and posting and distributing it and all that kind of stuff and they say that that's an impossible ridiculous amount of volume to be doing media analysis news conspiracy uh historical interviews uh authors all this stuff you're you're out of your mind to try and do it that often and this is usually from other media producers that tell me this and what do i always do i point to james corbett <laughs> And I say, if we can't keep up with him, we're not doing too much. Nobody is. And why? Because if you go to the CorbettReport.com, if you go to CorbettReport.com, that is, uh, you will find that there is a multimedia extravaganza happening over there <laughs> that is constant, that is high quality, and that is absolutely on point whether you agree with it or not guess what you get to see what his references are he posts those along with every show and is directly responsible as an inspiration toward what it is i do here now don't know if he wants to claim that very much but yeah so when when i talk about just producing oh five measly radio shows a week not a big deal compared to the volume of work being done by james corbett so Let's start there, James. First of all, welcome back, and thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here again. It it it's amazing the amount of stuff you cover, and of course from the uh, you know the, the 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 area of Japan where you are. It, interesting because after all, you're you're a Canadian guy who ends up in Japan, and there's a story behind that which you have actually kind of told in your podcast if people want to find out about it. Um, fascinating the evolution of your show, fascinating the, uh, uh, the developments as they've gone initially, just sort of a podcast, then a radio show, then various multimedia presentations, documentaries of all sorts. But look, enough about that because I need a sharper mind than mine, and that's why you're here. Um, <laughs> I'm confused, James. I'm rather confused. Now, why, why am I confused? There is this situation in Venezuela. There is the 
continuing, although not so widely talked about constantly in the way it used to be, war on terror. There is the constant struggle with, well, let's be honest, the paradigm of oil and the scarcity of resources that goes on across the planet. There are always the controllers, the corporate interests at play. And meanwhile, the American media wants to talk racism. 24 hours a day, seven days a week if they can. They want to talk about the latest outrage. They want to point out that uh, Donald Trump is the enemy while taking his commercial dollars in order to support him, which is another interesting false paradigm. They want to turn around and say that the nation is embarrassed, although they continue to make a point of the embarrassment. They want to uh, do all of these things and then point the fingers at each other and claim that they are all in opposition to one another when I claim, quite honestly, that just like the Democratic and Republican Party, it's all just an extension of the very same organism when it comes to media, unless you're independent. Now... That in mind, it's difficult to sift through, get through the propaganda, which, by the way, if you go to Corbett Report or you check out anything that James does online, i got to tell you that even if you need some light entertainment and uh, you do want to think but choose the level at which you want to uh, engage intellectually, the propaganda watch stuff that James does is absolutely entertaining (laughs) and informative on a multitude of levels, but... Back to it, James. How is it that we sort through all of this and actually get to what's happening on the planet, my friend? That is the opening question. Well, it seems to be getting harder and harder to do that, or is that just me? Obviously, like I said, I'm in a state of confusion, Mm -hmm. and I don't consider myself easily confused, but please help me here. (laughs) Well, I, yeah, I can sympathize, uh, because it is, it is, uh, I think, objectively getting more and more difficult to sift through the nonsense to get to actual nuggets of information. It certainly seems like it was more straightforward a decade ago when I first started doing this, and I think there are a number of reasons behind that, one of which is the development of the web and the way that information is being fed to us now in this sort of steady stream of social media feeds, which is not just, I mean, there's a lot of different aspects to it, but one of it is, is, I think it is reshaping us as human beings and the way that we process and interpret and and get data. And then what do we do with that data? It, it, It becomes more and more difficult to do anything at all. There's kind of a paralysis that happens. I'm sure everyone in the audience can relate to that information overload. Um, but it's, it's even beyond that. It's not just the amount of information. It's also the way that it's being fed to you. And then, as you say, the types of issues that are uh, gaining the spotlight now, which are the ones that are, I think, safely outside the realm of anything that will fundamentally threaten the power structure or the establishment. It's, um, perhaps I'm living through some rose-colored glasses here, but it seems like a decade plus ago, at least people understood that the Bush administration was doing some horrible things around the world and had to be opposed and there was an anti-war movement and people did care about these issues but as you say now it all seems to be uh, centered on these domestic political squabbles between left and right in the united states i don't see anything like the type of global awareness of the problems the bigger problems that i think might have existed a while ago and again i think that's because of a number of reasons one of which is because the social media has been weaponized against the people to i think precisely to pit them against each other so that they do not see or do not care about what is happening 
from up top. And uh, that leads to situations like what's going on in Venezuela, which obviously there's a, a thousand different factors that play into it. But one thing that we can pretty much rely on at this point is that most of the American public, to the extent that they know anything at all about it, have just consumed a few a few headlines from whichever their echo chamber of choice is and don't really have a grasp of the situation, its importance or, you know, what's going on. And I don't I don't necessarily blame the public for that. Again, I think this is because information is increasingly the, the way that information is being delivered is increasingly weaponized. And uh, I don't like to blame victims for their victimization. Um, but at a certain point, we have to. I guess take jack ourselves out of the matrix. And, uh, you know, the big question, the real question is, how do you do that? And I'll let you know when I get there. But I'm I'm starting to do that myself. I'm starting to concentrate more on actual physical books um, with the humility and awareness that what I do in terms of synthesizing information for YouTube productions, I think there is a value in that. But it does not go anywhere near in the depth of information that you get from actually cracking a book. There's just – I'm sure, as you know, as a as a dedicated JFK researcher, amongst other things, that there's there's just so much information in the books that you just can't really convey in any other format. Well, no, this is true. And what is truly fascinating to me is that by design, James, and, and this is something that you sort of left out, but I know that you're aware of. And uh, uh, I, I think we need to have this this part of the discussion really <laughs> to illustrate this to everybody else listening besides ourselves. Um, the 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 bottom line here is that at some point there was seemingly this drift away from the authority, the establishment, so to speak. Now I, I don't mean to sound like an old school hippie, and I'm not that old. To, uh, I'm not old enough to be a hippie. The the thing is that it, it's just. Uh, there, there was this sort of concept where people were drifting away from the authority in general, and it seems as though there were engineered choices, <laughs> right, that were presented to people that were, oh, let's just say, have ha, possessed with a proclivity to reach outside of the establishment. And what did they do? They gave them new establishment choices. And I do mean to reference directly the uh, the entire mythos of Donald Trump. Okay, not just the actions, not just the man, not just the reality TV star, not just the wig. None of that. I'm talking about the reality of this is an outsider who's not really an outsider. This is somebody who is kind of part of the elite class, but he's not part of the elite class. And you've been given another choice now to appeal to a slightly different authority, or so you think. But meanwhile, the military-industrial complex continues to do what it does. Big Pharma is on uh, unimpeded completely. Uh, there's an argument over how high we should build a wall or a fence or slats or whatever, but that is just an appeal again to some of the most base fears that the American public possesses because nobody wants to have an honest discussion about race and about the, uh, the, the illusion of culture in the cultural melting pot of America, which is unique uh, among most nations. So, uh, I know some people out there are already saying he sounds like a leftist, but I'm not. I don't buy the paradigm. I understand that there is an establishment, there is their agenda, and then there is the rest of us who are either suffering under it, seeking to uh, uh, free ourselves, 
or are totally unaware that this is a thing, <laughs> you know, and, and what happened is I saw people that were honestly concerned with things like 9-11, with things like the JFK assassination, with things like how we've been lied to, how we've been deceived, how it has been fully acceptable to poison the public, either directly in a chemical sense or in a psychological warfare sense, all those concerns started to evaporate. Even the oddity of Jefferson Morley refusing, well, Jefferson Morley <laughs> challenged me on Twitter and started arguing with me over, uh, you know, the idea that basically Obama was more of a deep state puppet than Trump ever could be. And uh, I said, look, you know, I'm not going to argue with you on Twitter. This is not the forum to do it, but I have a radio show and you can come on and discuss it. He publicly accepted to come on and then refused to show up. And meanwhile, this is a guy whose last ruling against him in the lawsuits he has, which this is an obscure idea for most people, but suing the CIA for decades now, trying to get true information about George Joannides. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, indeed, is the guy who ruled against him last, and he is still appealing to that very authority right now and talking about how Trump is a deep state, you know, um, what what would we call that uh opposition leader <laughs> you know and it's so bizarre to me to watch people mm-hmm. say but my authority isn't the real authority my authority is actually the rebellion the resistance and then on the left we're actually the resistance and meanwhile mm-hmm. it's everybody just dividing in the football stadium to watch the same game because they're all there to watch the games Exactly. And that's yeah. it. And, and the worst, I think the worst part of it is what, uh, what you're gesturing towards is that the, the, we're, we're f- well familiar by this point with the politics of fear. Of course, it was the guiding ideology, I'm sure, of your childhood, my childhood, the, the Cold War, the specter of nuclear war, the boogeyman, and then it became the Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda terrorist boogeyman. Mm-hmm. There's always the boogeyman and the politics of fear to try to keep people in line and keep them, um, from protesting too much or getting too far outside the lines. But, uh, the worst part is that this is really, I think, a new era where they're mixing in the politics of hate with the politics of fear. And the politics of hate is perhaps even more corrosive because as uh, I mean, it's perfectly exemplified by the, the fact that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the two least favorably uh, rated politicians to run against each other for president in recorded since they started recording those surveys. These are the two least favorable candidates ever. Everyone hated Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump to some extent. It's just a question of who you hated more. And in fact, most Donald Trump supporters, when you actually get get into the details, well, it's not like I like Trump per se. It's that I hated Hillary Clinton and so that I had to vote for him. And then, of course, you have the people on the left who just hate Donald Trump. And it's just about hatred. And unfortunately, there are some things that will override any pretense of rationality that humans like to carry around with them. And one of them is definitely hatred. As long as this person has the right enemies, as long as I can piss off people that I hate, then something must be good must be happening, right? Because, uh, you know, <laughs> Trump has all the right enemies See, or the, whatever the ca- argument is. Well, and uh, right, that let me let me interrupt you to, to point you at something, because th- this again, please assist me. <laughs> with my confusion uh we started talking about venezuela briefly and of course it, it is it is emblematic and symptomatic at the same time of what's actually happening but uh, on another level i was kind of mystified by the idea that 
we could introduce the ISIS crisis narrative, sort of, except this time it's Iran again. <laughs> again, because I'm old enough to remember that, too. Uh, being the great boogeyman, being convoluted in with, oh, yeah, plus it's the socialists, and it's the oil, and it's the... You know, the, the strong men dictators that we have to fight against because he's actually corrupt and, oh, by the way, Iran might be there. Oh, and Hezbollah on top of it because, oh, and we gotta defend Israel and, you know, how, what, what, okay. <laughs> that whirlwind is like the perfect metaphor for what's actually happening. A bunch of convoluted nonsense all thrown into the same basket to push the sentiment over the substance. And this is literally the formula for everything I think we're actually seeing and all the stuff that you're dissecting in your propaganda watches. This is exactly the formula. And tell me I'm mistaken. Uh, no, no, I think this is, this is the situation we find ourselves in. And it's, it, uh, uh, the ultimate point of this, I think, is that it is a situation where the only winning move is not to play the game. Because the game is structured so that if you enter into it, you have to pick a side and you have to hate the other side and you have to attack everything that, you know, doesn't fit into this category or that category. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of the, the, what that means, regardless of, of principles and, and ethics and, and, and strategy, it's just a, a melee. And if you if you get into it, you're just going to join the fight and you're just going to be a part of that system. And that is the system, essentially, uh, to get people fighting and to get people engaged in that system. Because, look, every single player in in the Washington Congress critter circus is does not. I mean, there's no clean hands there. They're all they've all got dirt. And you can all you, whoever you hate, you can look at them and see something to hate. It's not it's not difficult to do. Um, but of course, that distracts us from what the real goal, I think, should be, which would be creating an actual alternative to this game that they want you to play. If Is there another way that we could possibly think of to engage ourselves and engage society other than simply engaging in these politics that have, that the game that has been handed to us, that has been dangled in front of us our whole life. This is how you interact. This is how you make a difference in society. There's what other way would exist? How else could we do it? And that, that I think is the most worrying part of it is that, it's. It, it, I think we've gestured towards this, but let's spell it out. I mean, the types of technologies, even for the dissemination of information, are being weaponized. I mean, knowingly, literally weaponized and used against the people to keep them distracted in this process. And if people want to, they can go to corporatereport.com slash social media, where I did an entire podcast episode about the weaponization of social media where you have the people like sean parker and others who literally created these systems literally talking about how we did it specifically playing on psychological vulnerabilities knowing we were going to get people addicted to these systems and basically hack into their minds and you know mission accomplished i'm sure we all know at least one or two people in our lives who have been sucked into that vortex of Facebook, Twitter, whatever nonsense, and have had their minds so polluted that they're not even thinking straight anymore. And ultimately, I think we've all known this is the ultimate game plan for any would-be tyrant or ruler, is to keep people not not just 
suppressed, but to the point where they can't even think straight enough to realize that they're suppressed. That's that's the real trick to all of this. And uh, I think everything else is just noise because, as I say, if you if you enter into the melee, you're just going to pick a side and start brawling, and you're just going to be another part of the problem rather than something that could potentially be a solution. Mm. You know, as somebody who I also know is a, a well-studied individual when it comes to the, quote, English language, end quote, <laughs> um, I wonder if you've taken notice of this as well, that uh, it, it, it seems as though, you, you know, you and I are having a conversation. We are answering back and forth and adding to each other's points and refining each other's points, which means that we are clearly listening. And utilizing the language to intertwine our two patterns of speech together, this is what is called a conversation. <laughs> um, I observe that not only in Congress, but on the television news, and even in daily life, just as a third-party randomly inserted observer when I encounter two people having a conversation as of late, it seems as though uh, I, I am hearing conversations that are disconnected, even between two people about mundane items. It, it seems almost as though uh, there has been an incremental effort to make sure nobody's actually talking to or listening to anybody, that they're just making noise, and it <laughs> resembles, in a way, a conversation, but... um doesn't actually contain, like if you were to read the text of it, it would make no sense whatsoever. It would seem as though you had taken two different conversations and just simply knitted them together to vaguely make something that was a reasonable dialogue on some level. But when you examine the actual words being used, the timing, the 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 phraseology in 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 it. I mean, I, I don't have. I'm not quite as articulate as you are. <laughs> but I got to tell you, uh, do, do you notice that this is a rapidly increasing trend as well? That we are literally, although allegedly speaking the same language, uh, somehow confounded by our language as if this is a new Tower of Babel where you don't need different languages. We'll just confound whatever it is you use. Uh, and I wonder if that's happening in other places with other languages as well, or if it's just English. Uh, do, do you have anything to say about that? At work, Winston sees his friend Comrade Syme, and over a dull regulation lunch, they discuss Syme's current project, the 11th edition of the New Speak Dictionary. Syme is proud of his work streamlining the language. Of particular interest is the destruction of verbs and adjectives. The new dictionary will simplify synonyms and eliminate antonyms altogether. Syme offers ungood as an example of how Newspeak will be able to narrow the range of thought by eliminating the finer shades of distinction within the language. Thought crime will become impossible, he predicts, for there will be no words to express it. Yeah, I think we need a new Godwin's Law. I guess it should be Orwell's Law, who's the first to invoke 1984 might be the loser. But it's uh, certainly apt, isn't it, uh, as we enter into this new speak age. I have talked about this on the program before, but I invite people. Sometimes in the course of my research and my work, I have to go back and watch some archival footage from the 50s or 60s. And it is truly striking every single time. I know what to expect, but every single time it's striking, even when they do the kind of man-on-the-street interviews, the the ability of people 
just half a century ago to speak in fully formed multi-clausal sentences that actually make sense and that cohere and flow from one thought to the next, really expressing fully formed thoughts off the cuff, as it were, is remarkable. It should not be remarkable. I don't think that that was really just a phenomenon that occurred in you know the 50s and 60s and then went away. I think that is the way that people used to communicate. Uh, unfortunately, that is not the case now. Go and watch the man on the street interviews these days, even on college campuses where supposedly these are the best and the brightest minds, right? <laughs> and uh, you will find some pretty dumbed down uh, conversations and inability to really speak coherently for more than a sentence or two. And I think there's a number of things that go into that, one of which is that the general – I don't want to generalize too much about the United States, but I would say in Western countries generally, there has been a an inversion where intelligence and articulate uh, ability was, I think, venerated or at least respected at one time. It is disrespected. I think actively disrespected now. Um, there, there are exceptions when you have a particularly – eloquent speaker um there will be people who give praise to that but ultimately in in general everyday discourse no one wants to look like the the person as the smarty pants who's who's lording it over everyone everyone wants to just blend in and talk as stupidly as possible (laughs) and i see that uh as one of the factors another one of course again we could point back to the technology and the way it is programming us at this point, and people are increasingly speaking like they write. And of course, they don't write in multi-clausal, fully formed sentences. They write in the new speak of Twitter and the other social medias where it's, uh, of course, it's just, it's just LOL and, and smiley faces. And, and those are the uh, verbal, the, we're converting those into verbal equivalents at this point as I stutter for my own words, <laughs> but uh, perhaps proving the point. But yes, well, uh, listen, is, you don't have the ability to flex a muscle with someone who is going to compete with you and <laughs> you're going to have difficulty, you know, keeping that skill set sharp in my estimation, you know, that, that's one problem. The other thing is, I recall just a couple of decades ago, James, the debate over Ebonics, right, that this was a terrible trend that was going to destroy the language and the culture in America. I don't know if you recall that because I think you're a little younger than me, um, but – you you might vaguely recall, and if you do. if you yeah. don't, you, you you could have seen it in archival footage as well, <laughs> or archival audio out there among the right wing radio hosts of old. You certainly would have heard this as a constant, uh, you know, as as a constant mantra that this was going to destroy the culture. The fact is that, comparatively speaking, at this point in time, the phraseology for lack of a better term here and here i go with my badly worded sentence uh is was more concise was more relevant in ebonics than it is now in mainstream culture there are people that are allegedly out there trying to ascertain the facts as quote reporters as quote journalists who are asking questions that in some cases are not relevant not well formed receiving answers that are irrelevant to the question even if you were to attempt to fill it in with something coherent uh and and, and a pointless discussion ensues and it still becomes news 
Yes, it, it is yes, a weird yes. thing. Exactly right. And it is interesting to say, again, the media shapes who we are in so many ways that we can't even begin to fathom it. But one of the things that television and the sort of news cycle has introduced to us are these quick sound bites. You don't ever hear a full speech. You hear one sentence here, one sentence there, filled in with a bit of narration to kind of connect things together. Mm. Sometimes, sometimes not even that. And you'll have these interviews that are crammed in between commercial breaks. So you might have at, at most five minutes to discuss something with someone, probably more likely two minutes. So they have to cram in as much information as they can into as few sentences as possible and leave it resonating in the viewer's mind. After enough decades of of actually being exposed to this type of non non communicative language, people start to actually pick it up and use that as if that is actual language, as opposed to just the pressures of a media that that uh, that that most people aren't actually interacting in, but they they are exposed to all day. So people start to mimic what they are seeing on TV as if that is real discourse when it is not. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, yes, it it is. You're exactly right to point to that idea. It is like a muscle that we are not flexing and we are not exercising, so it is not growing, and discourse continues to go further and further downhill. And I don't want to sound like the fuddy-duddy because language is a living thing and it does change. And the rules of the grammarians of times past do change. And and if enough people make the same mistake, then eventually the mistake becomes the rule. (laughs) And and you just have to live with that. I mean, there are certain changes that happen in language. And that is a good thing. It means that a language is not dead. But uh, the real worry is what Orwell points to there in 1984, which is the deliberate dumbing down of language so that people cannot express concepts of a more refined in nature. They can't drill down on details. They can't really articulate what it is they're thinking. And eventually, they won't even be able to think it because they don't have the words to articulate it. It's such an insidious process. And unfortunately, yes, I can definitely relate to the idea that this is happening right now. Right. And it does sound like the trope of an old man. Uh, You know, gee, when I was younger, (laughs) the language was when I was younger, the music was when I was younger, the candy bars were. I know. But at the same time, it's 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 not I'm not an old man yet. And I, I, I'm not sitting looking back 60 years ago. I'm looking back at 10 years ago and recognizing that this was less accelerated than it seems to have been uh, just last week. You know, there, there, there were certainly changes. And, yes, I realize that there will be, well, occasionally some ugly dents put in the continuously uh, – uh, uh, revised work in progress that is a language as we go forward. I get that. And there's going to be words introduced in there out of necessity and phrases introduced out of necessity that are (laughs) deplorable, for lack of a better term. Um, And I get it. But at the same time, it just it, it seems as though this is permeating the culture in such a way that Again, I, I can only believe that it's engineered based on the intelligence of how thoroughly uh, in, intellectual prowess has been thrashed out of the language, has been thrashed out of the discourse. An honest debate, an honest discussion, even when 
I said, look, they're having all these debates about racism. How racist is the Muslim woman who happened to say a political action committee buys, well, political influence with its money? Uh, how, how, how exactly racist was that? And how racist was this guy for doing that? And which level is it? And tune into Don Lemon to find out because he plays that game every night. How racist was it? But the thing is, that uh, this is also a dishonest, uh, derailed discussion where we could legitimately have a discourse related to, look, let's get into the history of this. Let's talk about what is actually built into the system that is real, that is not about someone's feelings that they have grabbed from their imagination, but the real effects of things that have gone on, the real damage that has been done by these things. Let us try to mitigate it and move forward by improving the circumstances as best we can. And who knows, maybe in the next generation, they'll take it a little further. You know, and continue to do that. So, you know, if you leave the place better and every time a a new group leaves the place better than they found it, eventually you might have a better world, (laughs) you know. But you can't do that without some honesty, without uh, some ability to communicate with one another uh, in an honest fashion, without resorting to nothing more than an appeal to the most visceral, emotional, hyperbolic reactions that one could possibly conjure in order to do what? Create that argument for that five-minute segment in between the commercials of dishonesty? No, there's got to be a better way. And I don't look to politicians to do this. I certainly don't look to the corporate media to do this. But here's another thing. The alternative alleged alternative media, which is a term that is so watered down at this point, I mean, it's unrecognizable, is also failing. They are not presenting an alternative. They are either complaining or, again, like I said before, choosing a different authority to tell you it's time to appeal to. And, again, without the sophisticated... Uh, use of the language without any sort of, of, I don't know, attempt at critical thought, it seems like. I, I, I find myself thoroughly fed up with a lot of the noise. Uh, not, not the stuff that you do, James, but <laughs> quite honestly, most media producers out there, even the ones I used to have respect for, have fallen into these traps. And have absolutely submitted to, well, I guess I just need to fall in line now because my time of resistance is over. There is a way to resist without giving in to something other. There is a way to resist to actually be a nail that sticks up because you are indeed a nail in the first place. And they're not doing it either. What has happened in this past decade that changed the people that still cared about, like I said, 9-11, kind of a lost discussion at this point. Is anybody doing shows on it? Are we seeing new documentaries? Are we seeing anything other than the now uh, uh, acknowledgement from the mainstream that it does exist, but that's only for the most deranged individuals that we want to demonize? We'll also mention he actually questioned 9-11, too. Uh, you know, that, that's it. That's all there is at this point. And the people that seem to, uh, really truthfully 
have a passionate idea that they could uh, seek not justice. I hate the word justice, but to seek some sort of reconciliation of the truth and the damage done and possibly change the trajectory of the future by doing so. That's just off the table now. It's gone, along with a lot of other activism. The anti-war movement, like you mentioned, where is the real resistance considering the fact that, wait a minute, we are still in Afghanistan, the United States, or the Empire of America, or whatever it is you want to call it under its current corporate uh, organization. We are still there. We are still in, well, over a 100 countries. <laughs> you know, almost every country, in fact, has some sort of U.S. military presence from the empire. And there's action going on, and there's still a lot of other things happening. But we're going to argue about this small number of people that may or may not be attempting to get over our southern border. We're going to argue about whether or not a governor in the state of Virginia is a racist. We're going to argue as to whether maybe the accusation is enough for to call basically someone a rapist in the case of Fairfax. Is, is that enough to make somebody resign from a political office? Because that's really what's important. That's going to be the thing that changes your life. That's going to be the thing that the future is going to be built upon. And still... Not even in a sophisticated way, not in a productive way, I guess is the word I was really searching for. No productive means of discourse, no productive means of the search for information, the truth. It's just all of a sudden that which I knew was rare in 2009 is now almost legendarily rare in 2019. And that is the honest pursuit of the realities around us and an honest idea about improving what those realities will be some days from now. And I find it disheartening, but at the same time, it also gives me a, a, a very serious motivation to continue to try to do mm. what it is that I spend a lot of my effort doing. Being that you put out the volume of stuff you do, and being that you have really done a mountain of work uh, against the tide of nearly everything I've talked about, and uh, you know during this time period here, and 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 by the way, thank you for being the one to first reference 1984 because I didn't want to go first this time. <laughs> um, you, you know, I actually went on Ground Zero Radio one night. And answered him with all kinds of uh, references and quotes from 1984 when he had no idea that's what I was going to do for about 35 minutes. And he just couldn't stop laughing. Clyde Lewis over there. But I, I, I found I found that hysterical. Um, but but I appreciate that you did that because it was the most salient thing you could have offered right there. But meanwhile, how does this make you feel considering the amount of yourself you've invested the amount of uh, other people who you brought along even you know but not just your video editor but the people that you know 
actually care about your work you brought along as uh, uh, followers of your work, the people that you've collaborated with, uh, whether it's James Evan Pilato or it's, you know, which, by the way, I, I love New World next week, too. That's another thing to check out if you haven't heard before, guys. Um, and and I can't get James on the show. Don't even ask me. For some reason, Pilato, I can't get. I can get Mr. Corbett. I'm grateful. But anyway. I can help you with that, I hope. Yeah. All right. Let's make that happen. I've been asking him for a couple of years, and oh, okay. I just can't seem to get him. Um, but but I've always liked his work. I always have. Uh, and it was you who introduced him to me, basically, in a surrogate way. Um, but the thing is that uh, how is it that this settles on your head at the end of the day? If you can see all of this happening and you know that you, if someone were to just really, truly focus on the amount of work that you've done, progress could be made just based on what's over at your website. Progress could be made based on the things that you've revealed, that you've examined, that you've discussed, that you have illustrated in so many different ways, but it doesn't seem like the rest of the world wants it. How, how does that settle in your mind? Well, you raise so many important points. Um, and to pick up on the last part first, I think it is frustrating to have – I've been doing this for 11 years now. And at this point, I feel like I've been telling a story and not every single thread is directly related to the overall narrative that I'm, I'm, I'm writing here. But – a lot of it is. A lot of it is related in various ways, and it weaves in. It is a tapestry. And this story over here relates to that story over there, and sometimes it'll take years for people to connect those two dots, but eventually that happens. And when that happens, I love to see it. Um, people, for example, when I recently did my work on World War One, there were people uh, in the Corbett Report community who were commenting on how, oh, now I see how this ties in with what you were talking about with Colonel Edward Mandel House a couple of years ago with Richard Grove. And, oh, now, you know, the second time through, now it makes more sense. And I see how that relates to this and how this relates to the big oil work that you did. And how the and Federal Reserve had to be an and how the it Federal was. Reserve, yeah. It is, as I say, it is all part of the same tapestry. Right. And it is frustrating to have all of I, – I see all of these different disparate parts and – I, I, but there's no way you can articulate all of it all at once. You can't put it all together for people. So in a way, people have to join you in this ongoing decade-long, however-long story to watch it unfold bit by bit and go back and review past evidence. It is like going to school in some ways, I guess, because it is a, it's a – I'd like to think it's a master course in how power operates in society that I'm running here. But it is a lot of – effort and investment of time and mental energy to follow such a narrative and start picking up the different pieces and putting them together. So it is frustrating in that sense. Um, it's frustrating on an even more fundamental level, though. And you did mention an intriguing phrase there when you were talking. You said the means of discourse. And that's interesting to me. Um, perhaps more more fruitful, more insightful, more more pertinent to our time than the means of production, which I think... It has definitely changed in the last couple of centuries, but means of discourse. I, I, I keep coming back to this tonight. I guess our thoughts are just revolving around this point. But again, it's the the format, the 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 media, the technology, the the media formats help to shape the way that we relate to and understand the world. And one of the things that the internet in its earlier years did was 
reopened the literate world to a society that was becoming more and more a society of the spectacle, as it's been called by philosophers, um, i.e. television news focused where what you see is what you get and everything is images that are presented to you. And so it's the language of images, which is a language in, in and of itself that can have uses, but it certainly gets people into certain boxes. Well, here on the internet, in the early years, it was all text, so it was the rediscovery, in a sense, of literate society. But, of course, that moved on pretty quickly, as obviously we turn to audio mediums, like the, the one we're working in right now. And mm-hmm. so there are certain uh, formats that, that presented themselves as analogies to previous uh, media, like the radio. So you have radio shows that kind of become podcasts. All right, okay, so it's we can use that as a template. This is the way we communicate. But with a podcast, well, it can be like the corporate report or like the Ocelli effect where we're not interrupted by commercial breaks every 10 minutes. So we can structure it in a different way. We can have long form content at the corporate report. Sometimes I talk for 10 minutes. Sometimes I talk for an hour and a half, sometimes somewhere in between. It's whatever is whatever the content I hope helps to shape the format. And that's, I think, a good thing for what I'm attempting to do and the way that I'm attempting to connect this information together and the information itself, because you do a disservice when you try to jam it into a five minute segment between commercial breaks, as you know. Um, but, and, and there was an even, I think a greater flowering like things like the Joe Rogan experience podcast for whatever, whatever you want to make of that at this point, at least it did introduce podcasting to the masses and reintroduce the long-form interview, which I think is valuable because one of those things that I would point back to looking at the 50s or 60s, you would see these mainstream television broadcasts that is just a reporter talking to a, a, a novelist, a philosopher, an author for half an hour uninterrupted uh, in rather high-level intellectual discourse. Again, something that is just mind-blowing for TV audiences in this day and age. Well, the podcast did kind of at least open that space up again, and so people would sit there and listen to Joe Rogan talking to whoever for three hours. That that at least creates the space where you can have more, you can plumb the depths a little bit more than you can on uh, on commercial radio or television. But that is also, I think, being... Uh, eroded by the development of online media and formats. And now we're moving back into, I mean, ultimately, it goes down to the Vine-level six-second nonsense that uh, is popular with children. But even beyond that, I mean, uh, most YouTube, uh, most podcasts are now vodcasts. They also have a video element to them. And no one's going to sit there and watch a three-hour video on YouTube, so it has to be shortened up and tightened up for the YouTube audience. And, and so... I think there's a sense in which certain types of information demand a certain space. They demand uh, a certain format to be told. You cannot tell a story like in, in anything less than a documentary format. And the question is, how do you present that to audiences that just don't have the space to understand how to process that kind of that that much information people don't sit down and read books cover to cover anymore they they might sit down and watch maybe if you tailor it down to 30 minutes maybe you can get them to watch one part of a documentary maybe if you're really good 
But most likely, you know, if you can get it down to 10 minutes, and even then, I'll always get, and everything I do, I get people saying, oh, this would be really great if you did one of those five-minute videos like you did for 9-11, <laughs> which is the one video everyone goes back to, because that was the perfect encapsulation of 9-11 truth for the internet age. It's in under five minutes, it's funny, sarcastic, quick-moving, and uh, hey, what else can you ask for? Oh, so, look, even I appreciate your meet this person or meet that person. Uh, you know, capsulizations of, <laughs> uh, you know, one yeah. of them was meet Lee Harvey Oswald, which I appreciated mm-hmm. a great deal. But you've you've done, you know, meet this Bush, meet uh, this person whose name you never heard of before. You, you've done a, a a bunch of those where they they are the short capsulization. But to me, the 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 brilliant. See, here we go. Maybe it is. I am getting to be an old man. The 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 brilliance of something like Century of Enslavement, which you did, uh, is that, honestly, if, if you tune into the first 10 minutes of that, you get the gist of what's going to happen. Uh, so you could slice away your own capsule from something like that, which you did. And I, I do believe it's just over an hour, right? Uh, I believe that one was about 90 minutes or so. Oh, was that, okay. Maybe it was, you know, I, I get confused. I, I have watched a lot of your stuff. Um, but I, I knew it was over an hour. Uh, but either way, the point is I, I do know also that in those first few minutes where you're making these illustrations, utilizing their videos and uh, some other clips and a few very carefully and well-placed narrations, uh, you're, you're doing the job of that 10-minute video there. And then really just offering to the audience you want to go further keep watching um and it seems like we're we're all going to have to adapt to that sort of format where in the first few minutes i'm going to give you something that you can take away and then if you want to stick around here's more uh it, it seems like that's where it's all going but but then again you know look i'm not a prognosticator about these well kind of i mean yeah, but essentially I think of myself as just writing essays because that's – I mean that's where I come from. I was you know, academically trained and uh, pursued my Anglo-Irish literature degree to the master's level. <laughs> so the only thing I'm actually qualified to do is write literary criticism essays. <laughs> so, but, but it is a good practice at the very least for structuring a basic argument. And essentially I, I'd like to think a well-tailored podcast or documentary or even a shorter um, video is – a good essay of sorts where you state the thesis, what it is you're going to say and what it is you're going to prove and, and the meaning of it. And then you get into the details and you back it up, you know, so every part of that makes sense and you connect it all into a whole and then you summarize it again at the, the end. That, I mean, is pretty basic, but that is the way that we should be structuring or I don't know. I, I won't say we should be structuring, but I think that's a very effective way to structure these types of things. So this is not new I, I don't think we have to adapt it per se, and at least not in the sense that we have to reinvent the wheel here. These are things that have been known for a long time. It's just, yes, it is in a new format and it has a new gloss. And there is a there is a language to these new media that, that does unfortunately demand our insistence on it, which is to a certain extent, I'm a contrarian by nature. So I, I kind of want to go in the other direction. <laughs> and, and the more things get dumbed down and packaged down and made into five-minute soundbite videos at best, the more I want to go into bigger, more complex stuff. But I, I I feel the pull in both directions. And, well, I want this to be accessible. I want people to watch it. But I don't want to tailor my work to that. So how do I do that? I thought, actually, the serialization of the World War One conspiracy into different 
parts, um, so you know, thirty-minute digestible chunks, was actually probably the best way to do that. I, if I put it up as a ninety-minute documentary, not a many people are going to sit down and even attempt to watch it. Put it in a thirty-minute segment, space it out once a week, people will tune in, and it can become a thing. So that was great, and actually, that was that was really just happenstance. Um, me and Brock were, as usual, um, by the seat of our pants, trying to get this all done and dusted and ready for the November 11th anniversary. And it was Brock, thankfully, who suggested, "Why don't we break this into parts?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, that's perfect." <laughs> so it was happenstance, but I think that is the way to structure this. So there, there are, I mean, there are always trade-offs. There's accessibility versus depth and, you know, where do you want to draw that line and how do you want to negotiate that? I'm hoping there are ways to expand this out. But um, again, because of the nature of the technology and the media that are developing, it is getting harder and harder to have fully cogent, cohesive, detailed arguments uh, or or presentations. That's the other sort of uh, uh, interesting uh, a bit of duality that's built into the media at this point where you have the 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 clash so to speak between uh the concept that you want to uh do something that is sophisticated but at the same time if you do it too sophisticated it won't be something that makes the point that needs to be made and you know some concerns become more about utility and the utility cuts both ways. There is an expansive uh, set of options that are available to anybody that wants to try and do this. Anybody can do it. But the thing is, at the same time, there is a restricted level <laughs> to which uh, you can deliver that information regardless of its complexities based on, well, the receiving audience and the platforms that are going to allow you to do what it is you do, you know, thusly you're on BitChute more than you're on YouTube, say, you know, and we can't find you in the search engines anymore and you can't find me in the search engines as much as you used to be able to and it's, uh, it is what it is. So listen, last question before because I know I'm about to run out of time with you here. Um, and, and this is something that I really wanted to get to earlier, but I, I think the discourse we had was, uh, extremely valuable. So, uh, so I'm not, uh, regretting it in any way, shape, or form. But in general, though, what would you say is the thing that is being missed here in media at this point? What, what, what is the, the news? The concern, the reality that is not being gotten to, that uh, that that seems to be uh, uh, just sitting under the rock that nobody's kicking over, and it doesn't matter if it's you know MSM alternative, corporate paid whatever, the propaganda outfits for various governments. It doesn't. It, it's irrelevant. Who? What? What is the thing that we as the public are missing because nobody is bothering to deliver it at this point? I mean, is there a general sort of uh, theme that is being missed or is there uh, the big story that nobody's covering? I mean, this is obviously a matter of strictly your opinion, but I, but I want to hear it. (laughs) Well, that, that's, that is the point, isn't it? I'd like to think that everything that I cover is the thing that, well, how come no one else is talking about this? This is the thing that needs to be talked about um, to a certain extent. Um, Obviously the, the bigger question or picture that I'm, I'm looking at right now, relates to the concept of world war and obviously the specter that has been hanging over us ever since the end of the second world war when will the third world war start or 
as is an intriguing possibility, has it already started? Are we in a world war that is so different than any type of warfare that we've ever seen before that we can't even conceptualize it as war? Um, very important, heady topic um, that requires, unfortunately, again, the type of nuance and depth of analysis that is not readily available to a lot of people, or at least is not uh, in in uh, digestible Twitter-sized format, so it's uh, it's a difficult question to to even broach. But but uh, again, that's just from my perspective and certain things that I, I I'm noticing. Um, obviously, everyone does bring their own perspective, and it's funny to from my perspective having getting feedback constantly from people all over the planet every single day. I could go on YouTube and keep reading comments for for the rest of my life if I wanted to uh, on my work or uh, I get emails and, and comments on my own website and everyone will I mean everyone has their own their own story that I can't believe you're not talking about this this is the most important thing in the world and right. and to me it might be a story that yeah I think I've heard about that uh, you know is it is it my job to cover everything that happens in the world I don't know so I I, I certainly don't want to dictate anyone else's um, what should be important to anyone else I think we all have our own sense of that and that's that's I think I think that's been a pretty constant part of my message ever since the beginning is that there is somebody out there in the audience right now listening to my voice who says, why, why is he not talking about this story? Why doesn't he cover this? <laughs> who could be doing it, doing what I am doing? I, I always go back to this because it is a pretty basic point. What I am doing is not special. It does not require decades of study and experience it doesn't require a special license you don't have to even have that much by in the way of techno technology at this point it's pretty accessible if you're listening to this podcast you probably can create your own mm -hmm. and that's that's my message is i think i would just i really would like this to be more participatory than people just sitting back and consuming information because if my information doesn't motivate people to actually do something, then what good is it really? I mean, it might be interesting intellectual material, but uh, we have enough of that. I think what we need is people who are going in some way to apply this in their life, to do something. And it doesn't have to be start a podcast, but if you are inclined to do so, please do so. I want more voices in this mix. I want more people out there doing things in the world. And I don't claim to be the person on high with the answers. All I know is here are the here's the problem. Here are the problems the way I see them. This is what I think is important. These are some issues to look at. But I'd like to think that what I'm doing is also modeling an example for other people to follow. And I'd like to think that hopefully that message has reached people like yourself and motivated you to start doing what you're doing. And to the extent that 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 is the message that we can all be in doing this and helping to to move our way forward in a meaningful sense that is uh it, uh that tickles my uh, my heart to hear that every time i hear someone saying that they were motivated by by my podcast well you know the truth is it was a combination of uh and and in 2 days from now will be the first day 5 years ago that uh the ocelli effect went live folks <laughs> so um it is uh it was you know minor podcast before that i experimented with it and then i went with the live format and have stuck with it ever since and it does become a podcast and i include lots of things along with said podcast and do other stuff uh and partially partially not entirely but partially i was motivated by first the example that you set forth just publicly in general to your audience of which i was a member and um you know what it was also guys like jack blood 
and uh, and and Clyde Lewis, who either personally or indirectly told me, listen, if you're not hearing it covered, if you're not hearing it done, maybe you should do it yourself. And um, <clears throat> I took up the challenge. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, I, I am certainly a result of that. And uh, I encourage people, listen, at all times, use whatever skill it is you are comfortable using to contribute to what it is, especially if you believe that what is important is not being heard. Make it heard. Even if it's to two people, it's two more people than we're hearing it the day before you made it. And uh, and these things do grow and can grow. And again, Corbett Report, you can take that as an example. I'm not saying that uh, you, know, you have to agree with everything James says or you have to love James, but uh, let me tell you something. I, I don't understand anybody that doesn't respect you and what you do over there. And uh, again, I want to thank you for coming on tonight because it's always uh, a, a thrilling discussion. Is there anything you'd like to throw in in closing here? Uh, obviously, I, I advise people to go take a look at your work wherever they can. Best place would be to go to the Corbett Report directly. But, uh, you know, if you're on BitChute or wherever else it is that you see James Corbett, I suggest you stop and take a look and listen and whatever it is is being presented because it is of value. At least that's the way I see it. And, hey, maybe you don't, and that's fine. Find somebody else and continue to look at the information that is out there. But, again, uh, I don't understand you if you don't have at least a good level of respect <laughs> for what is done by James Corbett. So anything you'd like to add before we're done? I just appreciate you for having me on and having the type of conversation that I think is the model that we should be expecting or demanding more of in this cluttered media environment. So I do thank you for that. And uh, I have to be running off to an appointment. So I, I will have to go now. But thank you very much for that. And I'll just direct people to CorbettReport.com. Absolutely. James Corbett, the one and only, and a guy who's been doing it now for 11 years, so twice as long as the Ocelli effect has existed. But guess what? That's only half of the show tonight, so stick around. I'll be right back. No matter who you are, where you are, I suggest you go to CorbettReport.com and check out what's over there because, again, it is a unique and actually truly independent source of media brought to you by the guy who was my guest tonight, James Corbett. Anyway, stick around. I'll be right back.